It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Thursday morning, the 2nd of January. Good morning with much debate and discussion from now till 11am. This is Michael Reed on LMFM. The year begins for us on the radio programme today by looking ahead to what might change over the course of the next 12 months. Talks get underway at Stormont with hope of a political agreement to restore the power-sharing institutions and put in place the first government in Northern Ireland for three years. Brexit now seems inevitable and the process of the United Kingdom leaving the European Union could begin in the coming days and a new government will undoubtedly be in office following a general election here this year. In fact, the year begins with speculation about when an election will be held, speculation that will not end until a date for a poll is set. Let's talk about some of these issues with uh, the Minister for European Affairs, Helen McEntee, who's uh, Finnegal TD for me these. Good morning to you, Minister. Happy New Year and thank you indeed for coming in to us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, I take it that it'll be fairly difficult to get anything done in this country until we know the date for an election and that that focus political focus will be on when that will election will be held let alone the outcome well good morning to you and happy new year and just to wish all your listeners a happy new year um you know, I, I think we have always known that when Brexit started to come towards this point, as you say, where it's likely now that it will happen and in particular will happen on the 31st of January, um, this government is coming towards, I think, a natural end. Um, the Taoiseach has always said, however, even with that and, and with the acknowledgement and the understanding that Brexit could have happened last April and, and obviously mm-hmm. it could have even gone beyond the 31st of January that his preference for this doll to finish was uh, May of this year um, and he asked that of, of the opposition leader Michal Martin several times and of course that was not committed to but I think what's important for people to understand irrespective of when the election is uh, and even though people have often called this particular current doll a do-nothing doll and nothing has mm. happened we still managed to pass 54 pieces of legislation and bills last year which is above the average um, for any year in the last decade I think we've still managed to do a huge amount of work so for me as a minister but as a local TD getting back to work today getting back uh, mm. over the next few weeks and months I'll still be doing my work and my focus and my priority will be on making sure that the plans that I've put in place through the department, but also the work Mm. that I'm doing on a constituency level continues. It's not up to me to decide when there's an election. So my focus will not be on when it is. 
it will be on continuing my work until that point. So, uh, you know, I do think we'll probably see one this side of the summer. Um, that's certainly probably mm. likely. Um, but when it will be between now and then, I, I couldn't. And I take it you. we won't know until at least uh, the first week of February, until the Brexit withdrawal uh, agreement has been put in place. Most likely not, and and I think uh, the timeline now that we're looking at um, the House of Commons um, in the same way that we have to pass legislation or bills mm. through our House, they passed the second stage of what is now the withdrawal agreement agreed between the EU and, and Prime Minister Johnson and his now current government. We know he has the numbers, we know he has an overall majority, so they're actually due back on Tuesday. They'll start having cabinet meetings in the UK on Tuesday, and most likely in the next week or two we'll see the withdrawal agreement passed. It'll then go to the European Parliament where I think most likely again we'll see in the third week of January them passing the stages that they have to go through. Again, having been in the Parliament recently, I don't mm. see there being any delay or any issue with that. Um, but what that will mean then is on the 1st of January the UK will leave. I think it's something a lot of people thought would never happen but I, I do think that this is going to happen on the 1st of February. Mm-hmm. Um, and what we'll do then is get straight into the future relationship negotiations so that, you know, again yeah. requires mm. a huge amount of focus from our government, mm. from our team, from all departments. So, yeah. well, you know, as we they say, that's not that. the end of it. It's the end of the beginning, the end of the first process. And the work actually begins at that stage, doesn't it? Absolutely. Mm. And, you know, we thought that they might have left on April last year, which would have meant if that was the case, a transition mm. period would allow for almost a year and a half of that future relationship mm. discussion and work. What we now have is less than a year to try and put in place a trading relationship that is so close, so, com- so comprehensive, that doesn't allow for tariffs, that doesn't allow for changes mm. in customs, because we know any of that will impact mm. on our business, but also will impact on the UK. So our, I think, approach to this is the EU has never missed a deadline. We have always put in place a deadline and we've always stuck to it. The UK have generally been the ones to ask for and to change and to amend. So even though the new withdrawal agreement, which has passed through two stages in the UK, there have been changes made to it, changes that don't Mm. come from an EU or an Irish perspective or or from our side, um, but they are changes which have essentially banned EU or UK ministers from seeking an extension to this transition period. So I think that puts a little bit of time pressure on all of us. So Mm. what we're focused on and, and what we as a government and myself and our teams is by the 1st of February that we are working and engaging and I think the idea that this engagement with our EU colleagues will stop because now Ireland isn't the focus, that's simply not the case because mm. we need to make sure in certain issues, whether it's agriculture, whether it's fisheries whether we're talking about services of which Ireland has a, a huge um engagement with the UK on or whether it's our small and medium enterprises, we need to still continue to engage with our EU colleagues to make sure that when we're talking about a future relationship that we're on the same page, that Mm. we don't spend our time actually disagreeing or or trying to to find a solution within the EU26, that when we're approaching our tactics with the UK that we are on the same page and that we are looking for the same thing. So there's a huge amount of work to be done. So while there's a lot of talk about elections at home, Mm -hmm. that is still our focus and our priority. And of course, as you just mentioned at the very beginning of, of your show Northern Ireland Mm. for the Thonisht in particular who's spent a huge amount of time years at this stage trying to get parties to the table to re-engage. I spoke to him this morning he arrived in Belfast yesterday um, and they obviously now have until Monday week Mm. which is the 13th of January to try and get an executive up and running. And if they don't there'll be elections. If they Mm. don't Mm. people in Northern Ireland unfortunately will have another election and the one thing if you were canvassing or not Mm. up in the north or whether you were listening to the the elections in the north the one thing that people said on the doors is that they wanted uh, executives up and running they wanted people to start getting around the table and talking and they don't want another election. The British General Election 
election has changed uh, the dynamic of politics in Northern Ireland and completely so because uh, the DUP has lost its clout uh, and indeed in terms of Brexit has lost its veto if you like and it means now that Northern Ireland will to all intents and purposes stay within the European Union which is great news uh, I think uh, for businesses in uh, the Republic isn't it? Well, what we have, and, and I suppose to, to clarify, because I think there's some suggestions that we still have the potential for a, a no-deal Brexit or a cliff-edge Brexit if this passes through in the next few weeks, even if by the end mm. of the transition period this year there is no agreement, which we hope there will be, any threat of Northern Ireland, of a reintroduction of a border, any threat mm. of the all-island economy will have subsided because what will come into play immediately, and this is whether or not we have an executive members who are elected currently or if there's an election again, mm. um, will then have to vote as to whether or not they implement this new protocol for Northern Ireland, which would see us aligning in areas of the single market. Yeah. But also when it comes to the customs union, Northern Ireland will remain, will will leave the customs union, but will remain aligned again in certain areas. Yeah. So it means that you won't have tariffs, you won't have barriers north and south. People will be able to continue to trade. But you're right, the dynamic... Which will Northern align Ireland. Northern Ireland with the Republic of Ireland and 26 other European countries and divide it from the United Kingdom? Well, constitutionally it won't. And I think this is something mm. that for the past three years, not just Ireland, but yeah. the whole of the EU but has been practice. prioritising. Well, what it means is that the all-island economy that currently mm. exists, even uh, before Brexit, will continue to develop and evolve. And that has always existed mm. uh, since the foundation of the, the Good Friday Agreement. And, and since it has been enacted, we have seen whether it's agriculture, whether it's health, whether it's education or mm. sport, we have seen that all-island economy develop. And what we know is that people in Northern Ireland, from all political divides, whether you are uh, within the, the, the nationalist or unionist bracket mm. or none, um, people have supported the all-island economy because it's good for business, it's good for their communities and it's meant that over time the peace has not just been something that mm. we talk about but it's something that people live their lives But about. now we're moving to an all-island economic union. Well, that's something that we have had for some time. Mm. You know, as I've said... It's Divided it's, though from the United Kingdom. Well, no, what we're very clear is that Northern Ireland will still leave on the same terms. However, there will be certain ways in which they will be aligned on this island. And I think, again, to go back to the point that people in Northern Ireland have wanted this and I think overwhelmingly have supported not just this current withdrawal agreement, mm. but the previous withdrawal agreement, which was supported and, and negotiated with Theresa May. So this is something to not try and head us in a certain direction, which I know certain people want us to go in. And, and mm. I'm not saying that that won't ever happen. But I think this is to try which and keep is, uh, the status quo. reunited Ireland is what you're referring to. Well, yeah. what mm. I, I think there's been a lot of calls for that at the moment. But I think what our priority has been is to remain and to keep the status quo. So mm. what we're talking about is making sure that nothing changes. It's not about moving it in a certain direction. Mm. But it it's will change sure or might change changes. in the United Kingdom, but it won't change in Northern Ireland, which means that Northern Ireland will in fact be leaving on a, a basis different to that of the rest of the United Kingdom. Well, this is something that we don't know. The, the, the Prime Minister has spoken about changes. He's mm. spoken about divergence in rules and regulations. At the same time, what we know is that the UK as a country, and I think the Prime Minister very clearly understands, that to start changing uh, standards that to start changing rules and regulations means that the UK uh, and their largest trading partner which is the EU mm. that that would send them in a different direction and I think for a lot of people even in the UK now while they have supported Brexit and very clearly in their voting for Boris Johnson know that they're going to make sure that Brexit happens mm. um, they still have 
have and see the EU as their largest trading partner. And so to suddenly diverge uh, away from that and to have tariffs to change in customs, that would have a huge and detrimental impact to mm. a huge amount but of business But he may choose industries. to do that, whereas Northern Ireland hasn't got that choice. Well, they do. And this is, again, what is different to the withdrawal agreement that has been agreed with Boris Johnson. Representatives of Northern Ireland now have a choice as to whether or not they want to implement the withdrawal agreement. It has to be a simple majority. So anything over uh, the 50 percent means that this will then come into play. If they do not vote for that, then it won't come into play. And obviously we're talking about something completely different. We're talking about borders. We're talking about uh, disalignment. We're talking about changes um, to the all Ireland economy. But what we've seen consistently in any um, questions that have been asked is that the majority of people in Northern Ireland would not support the reintroduction of borders, would not in, would not support changes to the all-island economy as it's developed over the past 20 years. Mm. And I think that's not just North, but that's South as well. I think people in the South see the value and, and the significance, particularly in the counties here that we're in, in Louth and Meath. There's a huge amount of cross-border mm. trade. There's a huge amount of contact and, and connectivity between our communities. And, and I don't think anybody in the island wants to see that change. Uh, do you believe uh, that uh, reuniting Ireland will be an issue in the next general election? I'm not sure if it will be, in a, I, I don't think it will be as much mm. of a focus in this. I think the focus will be on Brexit and making sure that no matter how it happens in the next few weeks, that we are now focused on the future relationship because while North-South has been a huge priority, East-West for many industries have is just as mm. much of an issue. I think there are many other issues on the agenda as well. And I think for now, anybody that I've spoken to realises and understands that Brexit should not be a means to a discussion on a united Ireland, that that's something that has to happen um, and be asked for by people in Northern Ireland. And well, again, undoubtedly not- some people that you haven't been speaking to there, Minister, uh, and when those people speak in the run-up to the next general election, uh, undoubtedly you'll have to counter that by saying it's not the right time for a border poll. Do you not want a reunited Ireland or how do you feel about it personally? Well, it, it's not something that I suppose I've I've at the moment spent a huge amount of time focusing on because I don't think now is the right time to, to, to look at this. Um, I think people in general, as I've said, on the doors in Northern Ireland, this is not their sole focus and their priority. Their priority is to actually have a government with ministers who are able to make decisions mm. and who are able to start things moving because at the moment you have somewhat of a stagnant um, I suppose a lot of departments because you have special powers that have been given to civil servants to be able to enact and to be able to make decisions and, and set wheels in motion. Will there ever be a right time areas. to think about it. I, I think most likely in, in my lifetime there will be uh, and I think mm. it's a question that will be asked. Now I'm, I'm 33, I hope to live a long life so mm-hmm. I don't know at what stage along that uh, it might happen but I do think it will happen sometime into the future but I don't think now is the right time and I think the vast majority of people in our own next general election whenever it might happen, it's not going to be a priority for them. It is a priority for certain political parties, for Sinn Féin in particular, we know that uh, and I understand why and and where that's coming from. But certainly for me, it's not going to be something that I'm going to be pushing as a priority. And I think for this government, what you can very clearly see is our focus is on Northern Ireland and getting the Assembly up and running, but also making sure Mm. that all of the plans that we have, um, that we have been working on from every department to sport, to health, to housing, to social protection, to my own and foreign affairs, um, that we're working on those over the next few weeks, months, uh, and who knows, later Mm. on into the year. As we said at the outset, uh, we do know that there will be change this year. There will be a government in Northern Ireland, or there should be one way or another. Uh, There will be a a Brexit, uh, undoubtedly, uh, and most likely 
beginning the 1st of February uh, and there will be a change in government because there'll be an election here. Some things though won't change by the end of this year. Undoubtedly we'll have a, a crisis in health and a crisis in housing. How will Fine Gael, uh, deal with those issues in terms of trying to explain it to people when you're looking for votes? Well, I mean, I think in housing, and this is obviously an issue that has been to the fore for not just months, but for the last number of years. And we have always said, and, and one of the, the charges I think put to us is you've been in government for eight years, and yet we still have a huge amount of people who don't have permanent homes. We still have a huge amount of people who are still well, paying we, exorbitant rents. We and have that's, more than ever on both fronts. We yeah. do, but and I and think... And it gets worse all of the time and has gotten worse all of the time under Fine Gael's stewardship. But what I think is very clear is that if we hadn't put the measures in place, if we hadn't built so far the 50,000 mm. homes that have been built with a plan for another 20,000 this year, and that's mm. everything from private to rental to, to social housing to bringing housing back mm. into to stock, there would be much more. And I know that's not a consolation for people who are there, mm. but there would be significantly no, higher numbers of people yeah. who are mm. homeless mm. or paying higher rents or not able to get into the, the property market mm. if we hadn't put those measures in place. So when we first put our rebuild uh, Building Ireland plan out, every single political party said that we wouldn't achieve those objectives, that we wouldn't mm. reach our targets and yet we have exceeded those targets and yet we still have higher numbers than we thought we would have mm. and unacceptable numbers when it comes to people who are on the homeless yeah. list. So we need to keep building houses because it's the only way that you're actually going to deal with this mm. and the fact that we have overreached our targets last year, the year before, we hope to exceed the 20,000 target this year when it comes to health and, and again we're coming into January we're going to have we know the figures and we'll see people mm. on trolleys and we know that we're coming towards the end of the flu season so we're going to see more yeah. people who didn't present themselves in hospitals and it could end up Christmas. being the worst year on record following the worst year on record last year and what I would say to that is we need to try and shift and change our focus on how we support people and deal with people and that's why since this government has come into play we've doubled the amount of primary care centres and the whole focus is to try and keep people out of our hospitals but also to try and change how people I suppose react mm. when they get sick that they don't go to our A&Es that we're trying to take a lot of people who shouldn't be in A&E out whether it's working in the communities mm. in the primary care centres whether it's in, in my own portfolio or previous portfolio in mental health making sure we have more community teams or whether it's simply investing more and, mm. and this is hard I think even but whether for myself it's how, to get our but head whether it's this. housing or health uh, regardless of the targets and the measures you're taking the outcome is bad uh, the figures are the worst ever on all fronts. Well, I would disagree in saying it's bad because the vast majority of people who I speak to, whether it's in health or, mm. or, or other areas, actually have a very good experience when it comes to our health service, have a very good experience in coming in terms of dealing with the people who, who they're dealing with and the staff and the wonderful people that we have mm. working uh, in our hospitals, but also in our communities. But, but that's we intentionally are ignoring the fact that more people were on trolleys last year. More people were waiting for procedures last year than ever before. And yes, we're spending more money on health than we've ever spent before. Mm. We have an ageing population which I think is hugely part of the problem but we also have an increase in population. More people homeless than ever before. Yes but we've taken more people out of homelessness Mm -hmm. than ever before Mm -hmm. so you have to look at those figures and say if we didn't have the plans that Mm. we have in place what would the figures actually be? They'd be much Mm. worse. That's not a consolation. It doesn't mean that it's okay. That's like saying if we didn't have a government it would be much worse. Uh, The question is could we have a better government? Well and that's what people will 
ask of us on the doors and when I knock on the doors and when people ask me what have I been doing for the past three years uh, I'll obviously point to the work that we've been doing on Brexit the fact that we now have a deal the fact that a no deal Brexit particularly in terms of preventing a border preventing uh, the peace process from being I I think completely torn apart and preventing our all island economy from being shattered that's the work that I've been doing that's the work that our government has been doing and in doing that we've made sure that we can actually start looking at the year ahead that we can start planning economically that we can start trying to address even more these issues around health and housing but so many other issues we have a lot of things coming up this year in in other departments as well but you know whenever that comes we'll obviously be be ready to to talk and to engage with people Okay Minister thank you for talking to us today indeed for coming in to us uh, this morning that's uh, the Minister for European Affairs Helen McEntee of Fine Gael TD in Meath East Michael Reed on LMFM. Now, former member of uh, the Defence Forces, Lisa Smith, has uh, been charged, as you know, with a membership of an illegal terrorist organisation, namely ISIS. Uh, she has been released on bail and uh, has to sign on at a local guard station twice a day. Let's talk about this with Peter Fitzpatrick, Independent TD for Loud. And a uh, very good morning to you, Peter Fitzpatrick, and thanks for joining joining us here on uh, the programme uh, this morning. Uh, Lisa Smith, of course, uh, returned uh, from Turkey before Christmas uh, with her very young daughter. And you've had some communication with uh, the family about little Rikaya. Yeah, Michael, a few months ago, Michael, uh, Lisa Smith's family came into my constituency office and asked me for help to help get Lisa and uh, Akela home from uh, Syria. They were in a war zone area and were very concerned about the grandchild and the daughter. Michael, I think I think everybody in, in, in the whole country is, is fully aware of what's happening there, Lisa Smith, at the moment. Uh, she she she, she uh, returned back in Ireland back in December the first, and she was charged with being a member of an unlawful terrorist uh, group. Uh, she's now she, she's now out in bail. Uh, she, I believe she's living somewhere in the northeast. She has to sign in the guard station uh, twice daily. Uh, she cannot leave the jurisdiction, and uh, she can't apply for any travel documentation. Uh, she's banned from using the internet and from social media. Michael, from day one, Michael, I, I told you my main concern and the family's main concern was the grandchild. Uh, I feel as though being uh, the local TD in the area, I feel as though I fulfilled my, my, my obligations to the family. I've, I've helped the family uh, get, get the grandchild home. Uh, the family contacted me two, two weeks ago now. They were very concerned over the grandchild. Uh, since since uh, when Lisa arrived back in Ireland, uh, Lisa was, was taken into custody in uh, Kevin Street, the uh, garden station. Mm. Uh, the child was handed over to Lisa's uh, uh, family. Uh, the, uh, the family took the child home, and in, in, in the few weeks that the child was home, they had no contact whatsoever from anyone from the Department of Foreign Affairs. They had no contact from anyone from the Department of Justice, from the Department of Children or Tosla. The family was, was was kind of left in the lurch with the child. They went down to the local social welfare office trying to get help, and there was no help coming from anybody. So uh, all of a sudden, uh, uh, Lisa's uh, guardian, uh, sorry, child's guardian arrived in my constituency office with my killer and asked for help. So what, what I done down, Michael, was uh, I contacted the Department of Foreign Affairs mm. and explained the situation to them. They basically told me that they'd done what they were supposed to do with Lisa. Mm. They told me that they would get someone from the Department of Children to contact me. Uh, two days later, the Department from uh, Children uh, uh, contacted me and couldn't understand what was happening. I said that the family were very concerned over the welfare of the, of, of the, of the child and welfare, that there was, there was nothing really happening. So they promised over the next day or two that they would contact Lisa's family directly because they gave them Lisa's uh, family's uh, phone number to contact them rather than coming to me because uh, my main concern was the child. Mm. So o- over the next couple of days, the uh, Department of Children contacted uh, Lisa's uh, family 
And as far as I know now that uh, everything's been sorted out, the child has a PPS number. I think she's been looked after by the uh, by, by medical card. I think the, the main issue was that when the child came home, she had no documentation whatsoever. Uh, as you all know, uh, Lisa married uh, an Islamic uh, f- uh, fighter. Uh, and as far as I know, the child has that has the name of that of, of the father on the birth but there's no, they can't get any any, any kind of uh, hmm. information on the child. And she's so, in the guardianship of people she doesn't know who she never met up until a few weeks ago when she was separated from her mother. Yeah, as I said, you might have Lisa on a, on a child come home on December the 1st. Uh, two weeks after that, uh, a member of Lisa's family came into my consistency office with the child. Mm-hmm. Uh, the child, the child Michael, is, is a two-and-a-half-year-old child. Mm. Uh, the child was communicating in English, and the child seemed to be well looked after. She was sitting on the family member's knee and communicating with another member of the family. Mm-hmm. The member of the family came into my office. The child seemed very, very happy and very contented and everything else. Okay, but she's in a, a very strange and unusual uh, environment. Uh, she's come from a very different world. Uh, she's separated from her mother and she's with people who, while she is related to them, who undoubtedly have her interest uh, at heart and have been very concerned about her, but people who she doesn't know. There's a, a lot to take on for such a, a young child. Well, Michael, as a father and as a grandfather, uh, I wouldn't like to think that my child was in a war zone Bombs growing up, uh, children being raped and camps like nothing else. I think with that child, it's true for the last two and a half years. There's nobody, any, any, nobody in this country or any other country would wish that on, on a child. All I'm saying, Michael, is the child is an Irish citizen and the latest that the child is getting an opportunity to live, to live a normal life. Mm. As, as I said, from day one, the, the family maintained that Lisa is innocent. Uh, I, 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 I haven't met, I've never spoken, I've had no contact whatsoever with Lisa since she came home or even before she went away. Hmm. Peter, I don't know if you can uh, speak more directly in the phone, uh, but uh, into the phone because uh, oh, yeah. if you can, that would be great. Uh, we're uh, losing. I, I, I'm, I'm just in my home house. I just moved sure. to another room, Michael. That, that's perfect. Yeah, uh, but uh, Lisa Smith uh, will be in front of uh, the courts. Uh, her next uh, hearing is on the eighth of uh, this month, uh, in less than a, a week from now. So undoubtedly. Her future, her fate will be decided by the courts uh, and undoubtedly there'll be much discussion regardless of the outcome about Lisa Smith. But as you say, your interest is in little Rakaya, this two and a half year old girl uh, who has come to this country under the most unusual of circumstances. Uh, you said she's happy. Uh, what, what, what more do you know about her? Well, as I said, Michael, I've been in, uh, since Lisa came home in December the 1st, I really had no contact with the family. Uh, the only reason the family contacted me a couple of weeks ago there was they were, they were promised uh, that 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 uh, the child would be looked after, mm. and they were left uh, high and dry by all accounts. They, they were left totally high and dry from everybody. Uh, and, and, and in fairness, when, when I did contact the Department of uh, Foreign Affairs, they told me that that that, that, that they would help me, would come at me, and, and they kept their word. Now I think the family's happy now that uh, like everything seems to be put in place for the child. Like as I said, the child came in with members of a family into my consistency office. She looked a normal, healthy child, a very good-looking child, a you know, very intelligent-looking child, and uh, not afraid to communicate with myself. She spoke to me in, in English, she, and she seemed to be you know, kind of playing around the office. Uh, as I said, the, uh, the family has said that Lisa is innocent. Uh, Lisa said when she came back yeah. to Ireland that she would uh, give her side of the story. And uh, all, I, all I hope is that uh, the thing, as I said from day one, if, if she is in, if she is innocent, she's entitled to, to uh, live in Ireland like a normal Irish citizen. If she is guilty, she will pay the penalty. And at the moment, Michael, mm. I don't know much about it. She says she's appearing yeah. in court again on the 8th of January. Mm. 
and let, let the laws sort that thing out. And as you say, uh, you've spoken on behalf of the family and not on behalf of Lisa Smith, uh, and you want to leave that to the courts to decide, but you have thrust yourself into the middle of this discussion, uh, and undoubtedly you've heard from a lot of people. What kind of feedback have you been hearing from people about Lisa Smith's return? It's a town, Michael, when there's a lot of, you know, maybe criticism on Facebook and Twitter of what Peter Fitzpatrick was doing for the Smith family. But it's a town when someone comes into your consistency offices or someone meets you, you know, playing a game of golf or going for a walk. or something. It's a town when people meet you and actually start talking about the situation with Lisa Smith. As I said, uh, I'm the local TD in the, in the dark, loud East Mead area. Mm. Uh, I, I hear a lot of stories from my consistency offices. A family come in to me very, very concerned. Sure. About but you, you've, been, you've been getting a lot of flack personally, have you? Uh, Michael, I began a lot of flag. Plus, Michael, like, I've got a lot of good things as well, Michael. Because, mm. like, the, the easy thing for Peter Fitzpatrick as a TD, an independent TD, was to walk away from it and, and just and just ignore it. Like as I said, you know, like the, one of the most important things in my whole life is my family, and I, I'm a family man. And when you see grandparents and aunties and uncles coming in, you're looking for a bit of help. And when you hear that a child is in a war zone area, bombed and everything else is going, and from day one, like. Uh, Lisa had to pretend that uh, Ikea was a boy because mm. in these campsites, if there was any kind of girls at all, baby girls have all been raped or been molested and everything else. And I just wouldn't like to wish that on anybody. And as I said to yeah, you, I was very, very I mean, happily surprised to see the kind of mood that the child was in. Like the child came in my consistency office, you, she just looked like a normal two and a half, a three year old child just playing there. And she seemed, I know it was a short period of time, but she seemed to make a contact with the family, which I was delighted. Mm, okay, and the family are, are delighted to meet her in the first instance and to get the chance to get to know her, I take it. Well, uh, uh, Lisa, Lisa, Lisa left this country in 2015 and she arrived she back in 2019 with, with a child and they've never seen the child as such. I mean, like, and, uh, it, it, it was a very emotional thing for the family. Like, as I said, uh, what, what Lisa done or what she didn't do, that's, that's, that's not my concern. Mm. My main concern was to get the grandchild home. Uh, I feel as though that I, I've helped in the best possible way as a local representative. Uh, I, I, just, I just felt sorry for the family because they were promised so much and received so little. And maybe if there wasn't any kind of political interference, who would know what would happen? Okay, we'll leave it there for the moment. Thank you indeed, as always, for joining us. That's Independent TD for Loud, Peter Fitzpatrick. Michael, Michael Reed on, on LMFM. Now, Fianna Fáil is calling on the Minister for Education to clarify why special education needs organisers are being told to delay processing home tuition applications. Let's talk uh, to the party's spokesperson on education, Thomas Byrne, who's a TD for me, decent with us in the studio. Very good morning to you and thanks morning, uh, for joining us here on the programme uh, this morning. Uh, we spoke uh, not too long ago about uh, some uh, refugee children, uh, uh, asylum-seeking children uh, in Carrickmacross who couldn't get a school place. Uh, the Irish Times reported recently that there's 500 children in this country who are without school places, children who have special needs, autism and other learning difficulties. And 96 children aged six or more are in receipt of home tuition grants on the basis that they do not have a suitable educational placement. But 405 other children who are aged three or more with autism are seeking early intervention class places. Now, there's been a delay to them being given places. Why so? 
simply because the places haven't been provided. It's as simple as that. Um, and this delay is in education, but obviously it's in, in health as well because you have delays with speech therapy and occupational therapy and, and, and assessments as well. Uh, so this is a huge issue. And I did mention that time at the interview with Carrie McCross that mm. it was a huge issue among Irish children as well. Uh, and the reality is that uh, the the as I said on a number of occasions, the right to every child having their education uh, is is not been implemented at all, and it's a right that must, in my view, be implemented locally too. So first of all, hundreds of children out there cannot get a school place. Uh, Ninety six over six, they're only the over sixes. They're the ones that legally there's supposed to be no questions about whatsoever. Obviously, children go to school at an earlier stage than that, and there's mm. hundreds of them can't find uh, school places either. Uh, and what's happening is that um, there doesn't seem to be, our assessment of this whole situation is there doesn't seem to be anyone there really advocating uh, for the system, really, mm. and for the children in particular. But there's nobody there. Everybody's just ticking boxes, doing their jobs, but nobody there is an advocate for the education system. And the purpose of the education system is to educate children uh, and uh, uh, to implement their constitutional rights. There's nobody advocating for the child. But uh, what about the law? Because at six years of age, a child has to be enrolled in a primary school, do they not? Oh, absolutely. That yeah. is that is the rule. And what the department does then, if they can't find one, is they give home tuition grants. So we're saying that has to end. I mean, we mm. don't we don't we don't see that as right at all. Children are entitled to be in a school with other children. It's mm. not simply home tuition. And it has to be said as well. There are some private enterprises out there as well who operate funded by these home tuition grants as well, and they do a fantastic mm. job. But they are not schools. So some of those children will be in a school-type setting. Mm. Many of them won't be, but some of them will be. But it's private and it's it's not a school and, and it's not sustainable in our view. But they give home tuition grants some of the time, as we've been hearing to some 96 children, but 405 children waiting on those grants uh, to be processed. Uh, and there's been a delay. Uh, and the Irish Times uh, reporting that uh, they saw... Uh, documents under the Freedom of Information Act, uh, which had uh, instructed uh, the the people uh, responsible for this to hold off signing uh, these forms uh, for grants until guidelines had been updated. Look, I mean, that Freedom of Information was actually requested by my own office and we couldn't believe it. Well, I mean, we couldn't believe it. We saw in black and white that uh, CNOs, which are the Special Education Needs Officers in the National Council for Special Education, uh, were telling parents that they had to delay applications. Um, Of course, the department has completely denied this, but CNOs were reporting this and writing it down uh, to parents in emails. Uh, So this was happening and we do know that there were and are massive delays in relation to home tuition, not just, by the way, uh, in terms of providing providing children uh, with their education but also actually some of the teachers mm. were getting delayed getting paid for this job and it's a, it's a particular type of job for a particular type of teacher like it's not exactly uh, secure work uh, because obviously the aim is to try and get kids into school as soon as possible so that's not happening look we're we're currently uh, writing our manifesto uh, commitments in relation to this and this this has been a key issue special education for us with two debates on it this year in the doll that we organized um we've we have had some legal changes mm. done they haven't entirely worked uh, but what it does require is somebody there to, to advocate for the child to say what the hell is going on I mean when we saw one of the biggest increases in education spending in the budget was 26 million extra for school transport now what's that for it's actually for children with special needs to transport them not to the local school but to places that could be flung halfway across the county I mean you know mm. I have children in Mead one going 10 miles one way and 15 miles another way I mean that has to end and that's what, um, these children that we're talking mm. about today don't even have that mm. uh, but that's going on wholesale at the moment and the school transport budget is going up and up and up every year 
that's not money well spent. Mm. That money should be spent on education. So you're spending money on taxis, you're spending money on extra staff to escort children. They're all doing a fantastic job, don't get me wrong. Mm. But they're right, in my opinion, in, our, in Fianna Fáil's view, is that you should be educated in accordance with De Valera's constitution um, of 90, what is it, sorry, 82 years ago, um, was enacted by the people. Uh, if a right to education, we believe mm. that, that that should be uh, implemented in your own local area and it's not happening but for children. But there's a cost of this anyway, isn't there? I mean, if you're granting funding for home tuition... Uh, there's money involved uh, and why is that money not being spent in classrooms well, that's the, the point, that's the point. Yeah. and then the extra 26 million on top of about mm. 200 million for school transport this year is all, nearly all mm. for special needs transport that's money badly spent in our view that, that is money that should be spent actually on their education whether it's building schools whether it's prioritising special schools like St. Isis and Drada uh, St. Mary's Stepping Stones and Kilcloon are waiting for a building for a long long time but a minister visits them and no follow up and we've arranged for the department to, to meet uh, the school there this year Early, early this year in the next few weeks that has to happen so they have huge problems in their buildings a lot of special schools in Navan as well uh, St. Dalton's and St. Mary's um, so, so they, they, that needs action uh, we need extra support we clearly need extra places as well which means extra teachers in special education uh, to provide an education for these children that aren't getting it and it needs to be a national scandal uh, that people aren't getting the education mm. that they are legally and constitutionally entitled to now, And is it that the learning difficulties that these children have make it uh, impossible for them to be in mainstream schools even with special needs assistance? Um, well, every, any child of special needs, I mean, some of them will, will require to be in, in, in mainstream schools with special needs assistance. Uh, some of them will require special schools. Some of them will require special classes within mainstream mm. schools. So they, they, each one will be different. But the bottom line is there isn't a place, and it may be that they're just, some of them are just in a geographic area that they simply can't access a particular school. Mm. Or we had people in from, say, South County Dublin in particular, um, and I've met a good few of the parents there, but there simply isn't any special classes or special education available in, in the entire of Dublin 6, Dublin 6 West and, and parts of Dublin 4. So if you live in that Temple Oak, Terranure area in Dublin, there's nowhere. So so it could be that. And, and there are parts of Mead as well, like that as well, where there aren't special classes readily available or you have to go very far. So so that's the issue. So the so we, we had the teacher constituency prioritised for special, extra special classes. We, we, we look for that as well. I mean, they, they are needed. Uh, but they weren't even open in September. I'm not even sure if, if they're all open at this point they were to open there in early November mm. um, so it's, it's about providing uh, classes and schools in the local areas for children, that's, that's what we really want to achieve and to cut down spending money for home tuition grants, give those teachers who are doing the home tuition permanent jobs in schools and cutting down the school transport budgets as well uh, in order to re- so we don't have to spend huge amounts of money transporting kids here, there and everywhere, I mean the children with vulnerable special education needs don't need mm. to be getting in a taxi uh, for an hour, unless of course that is the the, the exact uh, type of school or education that they require. But in the vast majority of cases that I'm come, I've come across, most parents would rather the children be in appropriate settings in a local area. Yeah, as you mentioned, uh, changes promised in the Fianna Fáil manifesto. Are there you, will be. Yeah. Are, are you in well, election mode? Well, of course, I think everybody's in election mode. But I think in, in the meantime, I mean, what Michal Martin has asked for is like an orderly wind down of the administration. And he suggested a number of items that have been long promised um, that should actually be prioritised. One mm. of them is the uh, the fair deal legislation, which uh, particularly badly affects farmers uh, and business people if they go into a nursing home. Now, Minister McEntee, when she was Minister for Older People, promised that it's at least three years ago uh, that that was promised. It hasn't happened now. We're saying now let's finally do this, uh, do something positive. 
positive for people. There are changes to the over 70s medical card that Fianna Fáil secured. We want to make sure the legislation is enacted mm. for that to give more over 70s uh, medical cards. So we said, yes, we're in election mode. Of course, everybody is, but there are. We're there in are, limbo, though, because we're in election mode. Well, we're in limbo. Well, I mean, you talk about we, legislation. Well, There's no point in introducing legislation now, is there? Because there is. It, it will not want, be enacted before no, the next no, election. Actually, no, no, no. We want mm-hmm. to get it enacted. Mm-hmm. That's what we said. Mm-hmm. That's what said. He's listed out four mm-hmm. pieces of legislation. I've mentioned two of them there that can be enacted mm-hmm. before a general election that mm-hmm. will be positive, that will actually mean benefits for people mm-hmm. and not just have the constant uh, election, uh, electioneering, mm-hmm. you know, and speculation by the Taoiseach. Um, the, the nastiness that has come into politics as well. Let's actually do something positive. Let's do something that people can benefit from. And there are two practical proposals that have mm. been long fingered by Fine Gael, uh, that need to be implemented. We say, let's do them. Let's wind down this government in an orderly way. It's a democracy. Let's have an election then, Michal has said. Mm. Uh, let's have it in early May, approximately. Um, and let's see if the Taoiseach agrees to that um, or, or if the party is just going to agree. Okay, now, it may not be entirely in their hands, mm. but that's what, that's what Fianna Fáil wants to do with the influence that we have. Yeah, quite possible uh, that something else will happen that we'll see uh, an election happen sooner. But uh, unless there's focus on specific uh, bills that are already in existence, uh, yeah, there's very are. little point in returning, is there? Well, we want to return to do those bills, mm. absolutely. So there are two of them. Um, there are two that are, mm. would be a real benefit for people that would take a lot of stress out of people's lives. And we think that would be a positive thing to do with the 35 or so days that we think are left in this doll. Ultimately, it's a matter for the Taoiseach. If he wants to get, you know, get down to brass tacks and work and do those issues, mm. we're happy to do that. But look, an election has never held any fear, I suppose, for most politicians, but it's going to happen at some point over the next few weeks. OK, we'll leave there. Thank you for coming in to us uh, this morning. Fianna Fáil TD for Mead East. Uh, Thomas Byrne is his party spokesperson on education. Michael, Michael Reed on LMFM. Now let's find out what you've been saying to us. Marie Kearns uh, joins us with some of uh, the calls and text messages that have been coming to us uh, this morning. Good morning to you, Marie. Good morning, Michael, and good morning to everybody listening in. Good few people in touch with us already today. Jimmy from Dundalk feels that the government's attention should not be focused on anything at the moment other than Brexit. He feels that the country cannot afford to take its eye off the ball in relation to Brexit and that that should be a priority that a May election according to Jimmy is the best option so there you go <laughs> OK well done Jimmy yep. Seamus from Dundalk says that the government needs to provide supports for businesses along the border as everything is up in the air with Brexit and what the implications might be and how businesses may be affected it's the fear of the unknown Michael Well I suppose a lot of the mystery of it has been taken away since uh, the general election in uh, the United Kingdom and uh, the withdrawal uh, agreement uh, that Boris Johnson reached with uh, the European Union is set to be ratified mm. by the Parliament in uh, the United Kingdom and that means uh, that we'll have uh, an all-island uh, trade agreement uh, and we won't have the type of Armageddon that people were concerned about and that it'll yes. go ahead uh, as a, a soft Brexit uh, and I, I think all that needs to be done now is to dot the I's and uh, blind the T's and that sort of thing so it, it looks as though the first of February that'll happen and then as they say the work begins and they'll have to agree uh, on uh, how trade will continue uh, once uh, we get to 2021 I think it is. Well, that may well be, but Maureen from Drogheda is saying that regarding Brexit, what is paramount is 
that there will be no hard border and that mm. the, the government and the EU seems to have achieved this. However, Mairead doesn't have great trust in Boris Johnson and just says you never know what the UK could try. Yeah, well, I think the agreement is in place and I don't think we're going to see a hard border. I'm sure uh, if Mairead doesn't uh, trust uh, Boris Johnson, there are some who'd agree with her, particularly members of the DUP who thought that they'd be leaving on the same basis as the rest of the United um, Kingdom. Jim from Trim also listening into that interview with Minister Helen McEntee and doesn't know, he cannot understand, Michael, why there's an appetite for a general election because if you look at the polls, there's not going to be much change in terms of who is going to be running the country at the end of it all, it'll either be Fine Gael or Fianna Fáil. Mm, yeah, or both. <laughs> Mary from Slane listening to your interview with Hannah McEntee. I wouldn't be a Fine Gael supporter, but I do believe that Minister McEntee is doing a good job. However, the government has failed as far as I'm concerned, when it comes to housing and the health service, and they'd find it difficult on the doorsteps because of those Mm. issues. Okay, well, they certainly will be issues. Uh, We'll be talking about what issues uh, might uh, play into how people vote uh, when that uh, election is held, whether that's in May or April or even before that, as uh, is quite possible at this stage. John from Drogheda just staying with the elections. He has a suggestion for politicians when the next election is called. And what is that suggesting? Mm-hmm. Suggestion even. Don't make promises you can't keep because it will come back to haunt you, says John. It's something that the electorate finds hard to forgive if a politician promises the sun, moon and the stars and then doesn't deliver on anything. Mm, okay, we maybe have so. That in the past. <laughs> may, 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 maybe some voters, uh, but maybe not others. Uh, I'm not sure uh, if we've had it in the past. Uh, in that sense, uh, we've certainly had promises that weren't fulfilled, but I'm not sure that they came back to haunt those who made them. Well, that's a good mm. point. People may mm. they may have been mm. reminded of them, and you certainly remind mm. them of mm. them. But mm. as you say, when it comes to the polls, it's a different story. Yeah. Uh, another listener was in touch. Oh, Brendan, uh, who's a disability activist, and he says, uh, Happy New Year, Michael, to you all. Mm. And he says that his wish for 2020 is that motorists respect the disabled parking bays and don't park in them if mm. you're an able-bodied driver. So that's his thoughts okay. on 2020 mm. and is appealing to people to be mindful as we start into the new year. Mm. Uh, I'll, o- I'll only be five minutes. Uh, Mary was in touch from Drogheda and Mary was saying Michael we're only just into the new year and have you seen the state of some of the streets in Mm. the town and she's specifically referring to Drogheda so I'm not sure if it's similar in other areas saying that a lot of people are dumping at the side of recycling you know the recycling bins and bottle banks and all of those places that uh, it's very unsightly in many places around the town and she cannot understand it. Also making the point that during a walk through the town and a lot of, lot of people out walking over the festive season, I suppose, that she came across a lot of streets with broken glass that mm. just wasn't cleaned up. And that's an annoyance for her. OK, well, if you have left uh, some rubbish beside uh, the recycling facilities, uh, it's quite possible that you'll receive a fine in the post in uh, the coming days because oh, it is illegal and many of them have cameras uh, which are recording what's happening and who is leaving that stuff there. But as you say, the year has begun and uh, there's many people who are, are looking at uh, the year ahead. Let's uh, hear some of uh, the thoughts of uh, the President of Ireland, Michael D. Higgins. Here in Ireland, we have our own long history of immigration, 
of movement, of journeys, of leavings, and exile. At this time of year, we recall with pride not only the contribution our diaspora make to the culture and life of their new homes, but also we remember those Irish who may be experiencing a sense of loss, of belonging, away from their own origins, loved ones, and who are hurting at this time. It is right that we think of them, and not only at Christmas. The generous contributions received from our immigrants during times of great poverty and hardship for our people were key to the constructing of an Ireland that might become one of hope and opportunity, one in which a younger generation could hope to flourish and realise new possibilities. That is a very important chapter of our history and one we must never forget. Today, many people turn to us, their fellow global citizens, for protection and shelter for themselves and their families, and for the provision of hope for a better future. Do we dismiss them from our door, telling them there is no room but our inn, or do we greet them in a spirit of hospitality, bearing in mind the history of emigration that is such a defining characteristic of the Irish people? We face many challenges that will draw on the best of our courage and determination. Throughout 2019, the need for collective action against climate change and biodiversity loss became ever more evident. The year has ended with a clear message from scientists that we must do much more to avoid catastrophe. It was uplifting to witness our younger generation demonstrate their willingness to play their part in the collective action that is necessary. Governments have a key role in leading the necessary change. However, if we are to succeed in meeting this greatest challenge, we must all act as a global community. What may seem small individual actions can make a big impact cumulatively on our carbon emissions. Therefore, as we begin a new year, let us determine to reduce our carbon footprint and become more aware of how our actions can damage our planet's fragile biodiversity. This is an issue of justice for the future generations who will inhabit our planet. Fostering a sense of justice, developing a consciousness of a shared humanity, one that will compel us to reconnect our lives through a balanced relationship between ecology, ethics, economics, culture and a lived experience of fulfilment. Some of the President's hopes for 2020. That's President Michael D. Higgins. Now, let's go back uh, to some of your thoughts uh, this morning. Marie, what else have we got there? Uh, we had a phone call this morning from Alan just to say that listening into the interview with Helen McEntee this morning and it feels that in terms of what the government has achieved so far during the past couple of years in, in terms in the term of office, feels that, uh, again, similar to a previous caller, that they have let themselves down badly on the housing front, that it was terrible to see so many on the housing list and that it has exceeded the records and is worried about the next Mm. couple of months in terms of uh, the hospital situation when you see also 
uh, the numbers on trolleys at the moment. It's always like that this time of year too. Yeah, Michael, well it, it is indeed, uh, but it might be worse this year than last year, and last year was the worst year on record or so they say. Uh, we'll hear more about some of uh, these issues and how they'll play into an election campaign as we go through the rest of uh, this morning, but thanks uh, to everybody who has been in touch with us uh, today, and thanks Marie for bringing us uh, those calls and comments on the programme. Now, if you'd like to add to what's been said, as always, we'd love to hear from you. Our telephone number is 18 Now, three and a half years on from the Brexit referendum, uh, 2020 seems set to be the year that Brexit actually happens. Three years on since uh, the collapse of Stormont, uh, the people of Northern Ireland are set to have a government. And two and a half years on... From becoming Taoiseach, Leo Varadkar prepares for a general election here. Let's talk about the year ahead with Michael Brennan, political editor with the Sunday Business Post. Good morning to you, Michael, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, When would you estimate uh, the election will be held? Uh, The Taoiseach says May. Uh, Micheál Martin says sometime around then, perhaps before that. Uh, But I suppose it could happen any minute now. Yeah, I think, Michael, you, you, you're into two scenarios. One is they, they meet sometime possibly next week and decide they will divide that date between them that instead of the uh, Easter after Easter time that Michal Martin says he wants and Leo Vradkar's May, you've got a couple of weeks in there and they, they go somewhere in the middle, sort of in end of, end of April uh, type, type date. The other one is that they can't reach any agreement and everyone is prepared effectively for an election in February, mm. March, before Easter and just after that Brexit date with Boris Johnson uh, bringing Britain out of the EU uh, before the 31st of January. Uh, and we had uh, people like John McGuinness uh, before uh, the Christmas break uh, saying that uh, if there was to be another vote of confidence in Owen Murphy as uh, the Minister for Housing that he'd vote uh, against uh, the Minister. And it, it's unforeseen such as that that could bring down the government uh, in a snap. That's right. And I, I think one one thing that may point us towards a, an earlier time possibly is that just in recent months, the, the, the obvious preparations in the Dáil for a general election have been so stepped up that very little of, of significance is happening. And, you know, the political system in, in some way does need a general election to clear the air and, and give give a new administration a new mandate, uh, whoever that may be. So that that is why maybe, maybe February or March mightn't be the worst time because the notion of going on to May with sort of shadow boxing in a phony mm. war, you know, could be could be hard to cope with for everyone. Uh, um, what would be uh, the main issue in a general election uh, if we were to have one tomorrow? I mean, we've had elections recently that uh, were based on uh, the economy with issues uh, such as uh, the banks and uh, the collapse uh, of uh, the economy and the amount of money that we were putting into the banks uh, and issues like Brexit dominating in recent times. But a lot of that has been sorted out at this uh, stage, uh, certainly in people's minds. There isn't that sense of panic uh, anymore. So what will this election be won and lost on, do you think, Michael? 
Well, the two key issues that uh, Micheál Martin as Fianna Fáil leader keeps harping on about is housing and health and obviously that's the ground he wants to fight the general election on. I find it hard to see how they won't be the, you know, among the biggest single issues because you know, housing's an issue in, in so many parts of the country and the health service unfortunately despite improvements being made, you know, we heard over the Christmas about life expectancy is, is two years longer than it was 20 years ago which is, is a huge achievement but there are still big problems in the health service and that's one thing that affects people in a very big way as well. The only thing I'd say is since the last general election, you know, we've had the Eighth Amendment referendum and that showed again a big change in in Irish society and I think it'll be interesting to see in this general election, does that follow through? Do we have a a sort of similar big change in how people vote or or is it more of the same, a a continuation of of the 2016 type pattern? Mm. Uh, With no clear winner, uh, which was last time around and led uh, to this uh, do-nothing government as some have called it uh, this last number of years. If uh, there is to be a change, I take it uh, that the Green Party could expect a surge, but uh, they're small in numbers. Yeah, it's important in a way for the Green Party, uh, you know, to see if they can build on their green wave uh, to some extent of the local and European elections. And certainly Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil will be eyeing them up as potential coalition partners because the Greens have been in government before and I suppose learned to their cost what can happen uh, when you go in there, both good and bad. Um, so they, they will be one that people will be looking at to see, can they get a significant chunk of seats? They're only two seats at the moment, but given their their performance in the polls, the the recent Sunday uh, business post, Red Sea ones, we've had them at consistently at at seven percent or so. So on that number, they'd be hoping you know to get well up beyond their the six seats they had in in uh, the 2011 general election and to go you know to go beyond ten. But it's it's difficult for them and climate change, especially in rural areas, mm. it's hard to see the Green Party picking up too many seats outside of maybe their, their stronger urban areas. Will they be reluctant uh, to go into uh, coalition uh, after the experience they had in government with Fianna Fáil? I actually think from talking to them, they, they won't. Um, Eamon Ryan, their leader, is, is his philosophy in, in politics is very much he wants to get things done and be in government to influence things. And you know, ultimately, that is what politics should be all about, is trying to change things and, and make a difference. So his attitude is very much, I think, if, if they can get their, their green lines uh, agreed with, with, a, with a coalition partner, they will be willing to serve in government. Mm. Uh, and who do you believe will be the next Taoiseach? That's the, 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 the million dollar question, uh, Michael. Mm. I, at the moment, I think it's very difficult for, for any party that's in power since 2011, as Fine Gael is, to present themselves as fresh and radical and full of energy. And the, the risk for them is that people will say, we've had nine years of a Fine Gael-led governments. It's time now for a change. The obvious alternative is is Fianna Fáil as the as the next largest party. So I think Michal Martin at the moment is in the the the, the sort of favourite position. But you know we we saw what happened in Britain across the water where you know people believed that you know a lot of pundits that Boris Johnson had been such a disaster um, in so many ways as a political leader that there was no way he could you know suddenly win a majority and albeit in a different 
political system and voting system, he got a much a much stronger majority and came back. So I, I don't know whether Fine Gael will take hope from the Tories, but you know it's it's, it's certainly all to play for. Mm. Is there any point in the doll returning? Uh, something I was asking Thomas Byrne about earlier on, given that all of the focus, realistically speaking, is going to be on the election and everything that is said and done, for that matter, will be in the hope of winning votes. I, I think that certainly there would, there's no clear and present danger to the country if, if, for example, we had an immediate, you know, general election before the, you know, the campaign kicking off before the doll is due to return on the the 15th of January, I think it is. Um, but I suspect that we're we're still going to see uh, the play out of the Brexit scenario that Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael and other parties will want to just see the the Brexit issue sorted for now with phase one, Britain mm. going before the 31st of January, and then it can be an election on 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 many other issues other than Brexit. I just think there, there'll be that natural desire because, to its credit, all the parties mm. and none in Leinster House have stuck together on Brexit. So there is a natural sort of tendency almost to see that through. Uh, and that does make sense, I'm sure, to a large degree, uh, just uh, to make sure uh, that uh, you're not counting your chickens type of, of thing but uh, one thing hanging on a, a couple of weeks uh, for that to be sorted out uh, and uh, the I's dotted and uh, the T's lined and all of that uh, but if you go on until May uh, like that uh, it's just going to be a question of snapping at, at each other, introducing bills that will never be enacted uh, and so on uh, and uh, not good for the country overall. No, um, and and we've seen the the tone in recent weeks before the Chris the doll broke for Christmas. You know, it wasn't pleasant to see, and you have accusations flying between Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil in particular about some of their TDs that are in trouble, and each trying to score points off the other. So, to, the notion of putting up with that for three or four uh, or five months is is a lot to ask for. I suppose I, I would make the point as well, Michael, on, on stuff that won't happen. The government have announced recently that they're in favour of an electoral commission to run our elections, which is a very good idea. The only problem is this has been brought up many, many times and uh, and, and, and has, has never got off the ground. Unfortunately, that's, it's not going to happen this time either. We'll, we'll have this election run under the, the existing imperfect system and it will have to be the next government, whoever it is, that will, that will finally deal with, say, the Electoral Commission and, and many others. What about the North? Do you think we'll have a, an election in Northern Ireland, Michael, uh, or will uh, the parties come to an agreement before the 13th? The, the mood music there seems to be much more positive than it was before the the recent uh, general election, which of course involved the, the Asian constituencies in the north as well. So the feeling is that there's that that the deal has basically been been drafted many times already, but but there hasn't been that collective ability to get it over the line, and that this time Sinn Fein realised that it has damaged them. The absence of power sharing. They're saying I talked to Mary Lou McDonald before Christmas, and she. Said they a deal can be done and they want to do a deal. The DUP uh, got a, a you know a bad defeat in the in the general election when Nigel Dodds lost his seat uh, in North Belfast to uh, Sinn Féin's John Finucane. So they they very much have a are in a place where they need to show that they can restore power sharing as well. So I think the election results have helped push things along there and hopefully hopefully there will be a deal and, and there won't be a need for fresh elections. Uh, and what about uh, a poll on uh, the future of uh, the North 
forth and how uh, the Brexit situation and uh, the situation in Northern Ireland uh, following Brexit and the election here will lead to more calls for such a a poll. Uh, What prospect of uh, a poll on a reunited Ireland? I, I think the, 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 the prospects of poll are remote at the moment because the ultimate power to call one rests with the, the British, the Northern Ireland Secretary of State, um, and he has displayed no willingness to, to, to enter into that. It would cause a lot of disruption and division, but you know it's no surprise to hear Sinn Féin calling so loudly because obviously a United Ireland is is their mission statement. You know, so they're going to to keep bringing that up at every opportunity. UCD though have started a forum on a United Ireland. There's no citizens' assembly being set up here by the government, but UCD have certainly started. So I I think you're going to hear much much more about planning, about discussing, about what it could look like all driven by Brexit, really, the fact that you could have an independent Scotland, you could have, uh, you know, uh, uh, that, that what would have been seen as unthinkable scenario, mm. and then that raises the big question about what happens to the, the future then of Northern Ireland after that. All right, well, an interesting year ahead, undoubtedly. Michael, thanks uh, for taking a, a look at what's in store for us and for joining us on the programme this morning. Thanks, Michael. Michael Brennan, political editor for the Sunday Business Post. Michael Reed on LMFM. Let's talk about uh, cocaine because uh, there's an awful lot of money involved in selling cocaine and uh, that's because there's an awful lot of people who are using cocaine and uh, the result of that is that people are killing each other, it seems, because they want to sell cocaine to people who others want to sell cocaine to. Why are we not discussing and waking up to the dangers of cocaine? Have we given up on it? Do we not realise how dangerous it is? Is it that we have no idea on how to tackle it or do we just not care anymore? These are questions uh, that have been posed by Patricia Casey who's a consultant psychiatrist in uh, the Matter Hospital um, Professor Emeritus of Psychiatry at UCD and on the line with us. And a very good morning to you Patricia Casey, and uh, thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Good morning to you, Mike. You were writing about this, and to you as well. Uh, You were writing about this in the Irish Independent recently, and you were saying that it it was seen as a drug for the elite, for the wealthy, but that the typical cocaine user now uh, could be a taxi driver, a farmer, teacher, or somebody from any walk of life, for that matter. Why is that? Uh, I mean, why is it that people like cocaine in the numbers that they do? It must be Uh, something that's very enjoyable or something, is it? It is something that's very enjoyable. And when people snort a line of cocaine, um, the the impact is pretty quick. It happens within a a matter of minutes. So, and and it's it's very enjoyable and it gives people a sense of being confident, of being on top of the job, so to speak. Um, It causes uh, not elation and mood, but just a good meaning, a good good mood, a sense of well-being that perhaps the person didn't have before. Uh, it, their, their thoughts be, appear to become clearer. Their thoughts go, go slightly more quickly. So, so it energises people and that's a positive thing mm. um, for the person. We see the downside of it in the Matter Hospital A&E department where I spend a lot of my time and where, where my team spend a lot of their time because we see it when, when people have come, have come in 
in a very depressed state having taken cocaine because after the cocaine high there's a cocaine down and some people just kind of get through it and sleep it off and, and that's it but others become profoundly depressed and um, come in looking for help with that profound depression it's short lived but but it can be quite striking and quite dangerous the other reason people come to us is because they sometimes become very paranoid and suspicious of others and that's one of the side effects of cocaine um, plastic surgeons also see cocaine users because cocaine snorting damages the the, 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 the nostrils the nose and the cartilage between the two nostrils can sometimes get eroded and I'm sure your listeners will have seen pictures of Kate Moss the famous um, model um, who was a regular cocaine user and in fact developed that very thing as a result. Uh, she's, I think, since had plastic surgery Gosh, for it. Really? But if you look at mm. some of the earlier pictures of her, you will see her nose in a, a, a dreadful state. Okay, and uh, a very beautiful human being otherwise. Uh, but uh, is that what uh, attracts people to taking up the habit that they believe it is uh, the drug of choice for the beautiful people, for the wealthy, that it is something glamorous. I mean, in your article in uh, the Irish Independent, uh, you were talking about the great Gatsby and uh, the glamorous women of the 1920s, the likes of Sigmund Freud, who used it. Indeed, Robin Williams and a pope from the 19th century. Yes, a pope from the 19th century thought it was a wonderful elixir and kept it in a flask um, in his in his back pocket, so to speak. Um, but more recently, yes, it is a drug of the beautiful people. Um, in the 60s, it became the drug of choice, along with cannabis, of course, of the hippies. It, it, it had been banned in the US, but then in the 60s, it emerged despite being banned. And it's still, of course, an illegal drug in virtually in all countries of, of the, in, in the Western world that I'm aware of. Um, so, so, other, so Scott Fitzgerald, Sigmund Freud. Um, we hear we hear of lovely people all the time. I mean, a lot of the the, the movie stars, um, Robin Williams and Robbie Williams, the two the two Robbies, so to speak, um, used it. But but ordinary people are now using it. It's not just the rich and the powerful and the glamorous. It's ordinary people. And according to Garda sources, it is now in every town and village in 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 Ireland. Mm-hmm. And also according to that source, and indeed according to the to Europol, which is the European Union police force, Ireland, the Irish market is now saturated. And so the gangs are going they're either fighting among themselves in Ireland or they're going abroad and they're exporting it to countries like Australia where the market isn't uh, full mm. yes. So there's more cocaine and more people selling cocaine than there is in terms of uh, market demand. Yes. And it's a very expensive drug. So the price would have to come down. But of course, drug lords want the money coming in. It's about 80 euro a gram in Ireland. It's much cheaper in other countries. Presume- can, can you explain that? Uh, 80 euro a gram, uh, is that a, a day's worth or a month's worth? 
Well, that would be a gram is a very small amount. I mean, if you think of your weighing scales, I don't know if you're a cook or not, but if you put out a gram of, of, mm. of, of herbs, um, it, you know, it's not a huge amount. I, I would have thought a gram would probably be four or five lines of cocaine. It's not a huge amount at all. Mm. Um, so, so I think what's happening in other markets is because there's a demand for it. You would expect that it would shoot up the market, or that it would shoot, cause the price to shoot up. But I think because um, the these salesmen are in trying to sell it. They're selling it cheaper so as to get a foot into the market, so to speak. So if you were taking it every day, you'd probably need €500 Euro for your yes. habit. Uh, if you you were, were, a week, yes, yeah. you would. You would. And it, it is a very expensive drug. And um, I've had several patients of mine who, unknown to me, um, were, were, were using cocaine and got into vast amounts of debt, 10, 12,000 mm. euros worth of debt debt in a short period of time and only then when they were in trouble with with debtors, debt collectors from the drug people coming to see them today, mm-hmm. disclose it all to me. Um, but, but it is a very expensive drug to take uh, for yeah. a very short-lived effect and that can have dangerous consequences. I mean, some people do commit murder under the influence of cocaine. It mm. is a, a drug that can induce violence because of the paranoia that it induces. And very dangerous consequences as well because the dealers want to get paid and if you run up these kind of debts, uh, they won't just look for their money, they'll come and demand it and God knows it's cocaine that is at uh, the root of the gangland uh, dispute uh, that is taking place in Drogheda and we've seen so many young people run up drug debts locally uh, and the dealers come and burn their mammy's house down. Yes, and um, that's certainly been been in the news and been speculated about Drogheda recently um, and I think probably in other parts of the country that is the case yeah. as well. These gangs are ferocious and they don't just kill each other, they do take the lives and harm in various ways um, people, people who haven't paid their debts, but but n- not this isn't being discussed. This is the first um, interview I've ever done in my many years of going on radio shows like this, talking about cocaine. I've spoken about every other drug, but not about cocaine. This is the first time ever, Mike. So thank you for doing that, and let's hope that other stations will 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 do the same and and to publicise the devastating effects of this drug and the danger that it poses to individuals from the drug gangs. I think one of the reasons it's not talked about is because there isn't any kind of public health concern about it. There was, there is with heroin because people inject it and people get get HIV and get hepatitis C and then they pass it on to other people. And regularly overdose. And 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 the overdose mm. and they they there isn't the same public health concern about it about cocaine in in that way. There are individual tragedies that are terrible, but but not not the public health issues, and, and that's why it's not talked about in in any way. And also knowing what to do ab- about the, the drug laws. I mean, cocaine addiction itself is treatable, and the depression that people get provided they're kept safe. They don't need medication or anything for the depression that follows um, a a period of cocaine use. It it resolves spontaneously so it can be managed if people don't end their own lives in the meantime. But dealing with it at um, a macro level um, the thing the Gardaí are charged with doing is is a problem, and I think that's deteriorating.
deterring people from talking about it. Paranoia, violence, uh, depression, some of uh, the issues <coughs> you've mentioned. It can be worse. It can lead to psychosis, I think, can it? It can lead to psychosis. It can. Paranoia, I suppose, is another name for psychosis. It's, it's, it's delusions of persecution where people become absolutely convinced that others are trying to harm them or against them and then act upon that sometimes because because with the, with the energizing that cocaine induces it can also cause cause aggression mm. um so yes people people have committed very serious crimes under the influence of cocaine so it's it's a highly dangerous drug but people think of it as something now that people have after dinner in you know polite drawing rooms after you know cocktails um, it is there's a very downside and a sinister side to it that people should be aware of okay uh, is there any argument uh, to legalize it and other drugs or decriminalize it and other drugs no everything would get worse then because anybody could be, could get it and um, it, it, that would be absolutely you know detrimental in fact I was reading the paper this morning that um, the number of drug driving offences has escalated significantly in the last year, and that's only probably cannabis. I, I, I mention which drugs, I presume it's cannabis. So if that were to happen, there would be even more drugs. So you would have drivers belting down country roads at 150 miles an hour, thinking, mm. you know, they were they were they were they were driving Ferraris on uh, down in in in. in on, mm-hmm. on, on a racetrack so um, it, it would be highly dangerous to do that Okay but if you were to take it out of the hands of the gangs <coughs> uh, would that not make it uh, safer for society generally speaking and give us as a society a chance to regulate and treat those who are using these drugs? Well if everybody was using it on, the, on a large scale the numbers would be just too too massive mm. and not everybody who takes it gets addicted to it but many people who take it most people take it because they become energized and some become paranoid in the short term and become depressed in the short term so we were dealing with an increase in mental health issues that may or may not need treatment but nevertheless we would be a much more damaged society you know psychologically damaged in, in the short term for, for all of that that's why it's a, it's 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 a it's a listed drug grade one listed drug it's placed in the same category as heroin so you might as well talk about legalising heroin um, and legalising if you're going to legalise cocaine as well and you know that's where this whole legalisation argument is going Mm. and in fact in some states in the US there's a move on now where they have already decriminalised cannabis to decriminalise other drugs such as cocaine and the opiates Mm. Uh, and you said in your article that whilst uh, it is one of the most expensive countries to buy cocaine in at 80 euro a gram uh, we've the fourth highest consumption rate internationally so uh, we've a a real problem as it is and one that's brewing for that matter Uh, I'm sure you've given people some uh, pause for thought this morning though and thank you indeed uh, as always for joining us here on the programme thank you indeed Uh, that's uh, Professor Patricia Casey Michael Reed on LMFM. Last year, 27 pedestrians were knocked down and died as a result. Eight cyclists were killed on our roads, 16 motorcyclists, 16 people who were passengers in cars died after road traffic accidents and 81 
drivers died. That's a total of 148 people who lost their lives on the roads last year. Let's talk about this with Brian Farrell, who's uh, the Communications Manager with uh, the Road Safety Authority. Good morning to you, Brian, and thanks for joining us here on the programme this morning. Uh, It's a a lot of people and each life as valuable as the next, uh, and it's an increase of some 4% on the year previous. It is indeed, and, and maybe just to give you some local context as well, in, in 2019, four people lost their lives on roads in County Louth and seven people lost their lives on the roads in County Meath. And I'm, I'm mindful that, you know, I'm, I'm, you know, there may be people listening in who, who, who know some of those people who, who lost their lives and, of course, our, our thoughts are, are with those families and, and, and friends, especially at this time of year. Um, you know, is, is that is that better or worse than 2018? Mm. Well, in 2018, 13 people died on the roads in Louth and Mead, so I suppose it represents a drop of, of two deaths. But again, that's cold comfort for those who've lost loved ones. Overall, as you say, it's 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 an increase. It's a 4% increase. It's it's uh, six up on, on the previous year. Um, and, and it is a worry. It, it is saddening as well that, you know, not only have we lost those 148 lives, it also represents an increase. And I, I think, Michael, you know, and we have been here before where mm. we've had setbacks and what we've done is we've responded to that by, you know, but with, I suppose with action. That's what we need to do here. Respond with action rather than, you know, words. I think that's the that's the critical thing to try and reverse this. And we can reverse it because, as I said, we've done that in the past decade. 2018 was the safest year on our roads. And we are also in the final year of the government's road safety strategy, eight-year strategy. 2020 is the final year. And the target in the road safety strategy is to achieve 100... Uh, sorry, not to achieve. That's a terrible thing to say. Mm-hmm. But to reduce road deaths to 124 or fewer by the end of 2020. Now, as you say, we're 148 this year. Can we achieve that? Yes, we can. And to put it as simply as this, in 2019, we were killing an average of 100, or sorry, 12 people a month on the roads. If we were to save two lives every month on our roads, so that, you know, mm. we, we try and get 10 or fewer people, you know, dying on our roads per month each month this year, we will actually achieve the government's road safety char- target and, importantly, save lives, reduce yeah. deaths can, to 124 or fewer. That you, would can, put can, us among the safest, that would make us the mm. safest country in Europe for road safety. OK, but can you set targets like that? Uh, I mean, is it possible? Because some of uh, these deaths are unavoidable. Undoubtedly, they're unavoidable. People would say it's God will or an act of fate or whatever the case may be. But uh, if you can set targets like this, uh, it would suggest or indicate uh, that maybe 20 20 or 30 or, or more people should be alive today than is the case. Oh, like Michael, you've been, you know, focusing on road safety now for, for many, many years. And you would have remembered what it was like at the very, very start when we were embarking on this whole crusade. And that's maybe yeah. the way to describe it, to reduce and tackle road deaths on our roads. And when we launched our first road safety strategy in 2006, we, we had 21 people dying a month on our roads and we were trying to set a target of achieving 15 deaths a month. And everyone said it was pie in the sky, not a chance, we won't do it. And we've done it. And we were told that, you know, there was no point doing it. As you say, that, you know, these are acts of God. There's nothing you can do. They're inevitable. They're going to happen. But by putting in place measures that we know are proven 
because of evidence from other roads from other other countries and their road safety efforts we have managed to do it and there are countries like the UK like Sweden the Netherlands mm. who would have road safety records that would be on par with where we're aiming to be and they got there not by accident mm-hmm. by putting in place concerted uh, campaigns and putting in place specific actions to tackle the killer behaviours of drink driving, well, well, drug well, driving, etc. Well, exactly. No doubt some of uh, these deaths or a lot of these deaths are unavoidable, but uh, uh, it follows that uh, a lot of them are avoidable. And I was just talking with uh, Professor Patricia Casey uh, about cocaine usage. and she, Oh, gosh. She, yeah. she, she, she was pointing uh, to your statistics uh, and how drugs have become a real problem problem with drivers yeah. and that uh, there'll be a, a focus on drug driving next year or this year. Yeah, yeah, uh, Michael, you, you've absolutely hit the nail on the head. We're very worried about this and, and so are the Guardi as well. It's, it's not just a problem that's manifesting itself on the roads. There is a problem in society, in our communities with the prevalence and availability of drugs, particularly cocaine. And it's, it's tied to the, you know, the fact that the economy is picking up again and we're, we're, we're almost back in Celtic Tiger uh, territory with, 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 with people with, with the money to spend on, on stuff like this. Mm. And it's, it's, it's turning up on our, on, on our, in our roads, on, on our roads. And, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why we're seeing an increase in drug driving detections, but also because the Guardi are getting more proactive now that they have devices to detect, you know, cannabis and, 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 and cocaine and, and opiates and benzodiazepines in drivers at the roadside. And they are proving successful. And up to September, because that's the figures that are available, you know, there's been over 900 drivers arrested for, for drug driving. But I'll be honest with you, Michael. It, it, it really is a problem out there, really is a problem out there on the roads. One of the big issues we're going to be tackling next year. But I have to say, it's very patchy in terms of, you know, the results of enforcement activity around the country. Give you an example of those 900 drivers that have been arrested for drug driving up to the end of September. If you look at County Kildare, 123 drivers have been arrested for driving under the influence of mm. drugs in that time period. You look at Loud Mead, it's five, one in Loud and four in Mead. And look, I don't know what the reason is behind that, but but certainly there is a big problem out there on the roads, and I'm sure that this is probably as big a problem in Laodamese as it is in Kildare. If not but bigger. the enforcement yeah. figures are a worry, Michael, I'll, I'll be honest with you. All right, uh, and uh, anybody who drives uh, takes responsibility for their own life, the life of uh, the people in the car with them, and indeed the lives of anybody else who's on the roads at the time that they're driving. And uh, the statistics in themselves, statistics are one thing, but they cannot quite often tell a, a story. Uh, and the statistics from this year indicate uh, that quite often uh, people die as a, a result of uh, these accidents uh, and uh, that more people have died than there has been accidents. 148 people died, uh, as we mentioned, uh, but that was from 137 fatal crashes. Yeah, and, and I'll be honest with you, Michael, we, we don't use the word accident. We, we talk about collisions, crashes or, mm. or incidents on the road because... You know, the majority, the vast majority in nine out of 10 cases, what's happening on our roads is down to our own road user behavior or poor decisions or bad road user behavior. It's, it's, it's a result of, of, of speeding. It's as a result of drink or drug driving, driving while tired, not wearing a seatbelt, um, you know, not, you know, failing to anticipate the presence of, of, of vulnerable road users like cyclists and pedestrians. It's, it's pedestrians who are walking, unfortunately, drunk on our roads. Um, uh, one of the problems there. And, and you know, that's why we, we, we need to understand that, you know, 
it, 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 these are not acts of God. That in the vast majority of cases, they are not acts of God that are happening out there on the road. There's a result of uh, of people making poor, poor decisions, and and that's what we're asking people to do in 2020 is just to make better decisions. Using the roads is something we do every day, Michael, and I think we become immune to the risks because it's habitual. But we mustn't forget it's the most dangerous thing we do every day. And all I'm asking people to do is to just make little changes. Every time you go out and use the roads, maybe set off on the journey a little bit earlier so you're not under pressure and, and, and rushing to get to your destination. Make sure that everyone's belted in, even on the smaller, short trips. And and, and as I said, just take, take the foot off the pedal and, and you know, one of the big things we're seeing as well, and it's going to be a big issue next year, is fatigue. Mm. And, you know, especially among those who are shift workers, and especially those involved in, in, in you know, health professionals, especially nurses. You're falling asleep you know, at the wheel and waking up yeah. in hospital if you wake up at all. Yeah. All right, Brian. Yeah. And people don't fight sleep at the wheel. Stop sip sleep. Remember the advice. OK, Brian, I have to leave there. Thank you indeed for joining us here this morning. Brian Farrell, Communications Manager with the Road Safety Authority of Ireland, brings our first programme of this year to an end. Thanks to Marie Kearns for producing, Maggie McGuire for researching, and Chris Marie in the Control Tower. I'm Michael Godwilling. We'll see you for our next programme tomorrow morning at 9am right here on LMFM. Good morning. Bye-bye. The Michael Reed Show podcast. Tune in weekdays from 9 on LMFM. To contact us, email now. Michael at lmfm.ie. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 
luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns.